You know, Jay, you'd think a pocket universe would be easier to explain, but man, Age of Apocalypse is a mess of contradictions. Ugh, Miles, I know. For starters, why did it overwrite the 616 instead of just branching off into a different timeline? And given that it definitely ended, how could they keep going back afterward? Oh, it didn't end. I distinctly remember it ending in X-Men Omega. It turned out later that Phoenix saved it. I guess that makes sense. I mean, if anyone could, it'd be her. Well, Sinister and Magneto took credit at the time. Those jerks. Did they at least manage to fix the timeline, Days of Future Yet to Come style? They did not. But Apocalypse was dead. I mean, wasn't he? Yeah, but then Weapon X became the new Apocalypse. That's not good. It is definitely not. He did a lot of murdering, and Gene took a page from the 616 and tried to stop him by... Cloning him and racing the clone in an idyllic simulacrum of Kansas? Getting a bunch of clones of Wanda Maximoff to depower all the mutants. What?! I'm Jay Editon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 287 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to the dawning of the Age of Apocalypse. Jay, we are here! We are here. I was gonna say, it's gone from comics' greatest superhero soap opera to comics' greatest gritty post-apocalyptic soap opera. Oh, it has. And man, I remember when we first started this podcast. Hell, when we were first talking about starting this podcast, one of the things we were most excited about was what we are beginning right now. Because I know the Age of Apocalypse is one of both of our favorite stories, and it's especially got some significance for you, right? Yep. This was among, in fact, X-Men Alpha, which we're reading today, was among the very first X-Men comics that I ever read. I think this and God Loves Man Kills were what you started me out with. Oh man, I mean, past Miles had good judgment as far as quality, but as far as continuity, I am baffled you read X-Men Alpha with no context and kept going. So, I actually think it was a really good jumping on point, for kind of exactly that reason. No, I didn't have context, but neither did anybody else. This was the introduction to a universe that was, if not whole cloth, a massive, massive departure from what readers were used to. So while I was jumping in in Media Res, so was the target audience. You know, that is a really good point. And I gotta say, reading through X-Men Alpha again, and um, the entire Age of Apocalypse and all of its sequels over the last few days, my brain is broken— but reading over X-Men Alpha again specifically, I am damn impressed with how well it sets up this massive, massive world with massive amounts of backstory, and it just implies little bits here and there and shows us little bits here and there, and the world immediately feels believable. It feels lived in. It feels complicated. Yeah, one of the things I really, really like about Age of Apocalypse, and specifically about what X-Men Alpha establishes, is that it pulls a new hope. We are jumping in in the final chapter of an epic. We are, and I freaking love that. I also love that it gets us lots of opportunities to go back in time and check out the backstory of this world. And we certainly see a handful of issues that do exactly that that were released 
interspersed with the other Age of Apocalypse stuff, and in some cases, a fair bit after. And that works. It's sort of like... It's sort of like Logan's history. Because there are all these big blank spaces, you have lots of things you can refer to obliquely without going into, and if you feel like doing a flashback issue, you can do that too. But unlike Logan's history, I don't feel annoyed when people flesh out the Age of Apocalypse. Fair enough, fair enough. Although opinions on the sequels uh, certainly vary. But before we get too much further, I feel like we should talk about all of the massive and complicated events that have led us to this point. So let's see what happened previously on X-Men. Now, I'm going to, when I talk about this episode elsewhere and promote it on Twitter, suggest it as a jumping on point just like it was for me for X-Men. So we've probably got some new listeners here. Let's get them up to speed as fast as we can. Professor Xavier's son Legion went 20 years back in time, accidentally killed his dad, and due to the resulting historical paradox, the Marvel Universe as we know it was obliterated. Professor X is the founder and director of the X-Men. He's a telepath. He usually uses, uses a wheelchair, and he's always bald. Uh, but yeah, that's um, that's basically it. That's all you need to know. And man, I am immediately coming around to your argument that this is a good jumping on point, Jay, because you're right. All you need to know is that reality got messed up and all of a sudden stuff is weird and post-apocalyptic and everybody has cool outfits and facial tattoos for some reason. And that's it. Yeah, it is enough of a world in its own right to really stand on its own well. And because of what it is, because it's this massive reboot of the entire publishing line, it's deliberately designed to be accessible. Oh, yeah. And speaking of it being a reboot of the publishing line, seriously, all of the X-Men books, and there were quite a few at the time, all of them were replaced with new books with new titles for four months. And as I've mentioned many times... Marvel didn't really publicize the fact that this was a temporary thing. They were really playing this up as an event that would change everything. And it did. It just, you know, also ended and things went vaguely back to normal. It's an impressive editorial feat, though, because in this event, in this four-month event, everything is happening simultaneously, except for the backstory stuff, and it all ties together. Every book is referencing every other book. There are little crossovers between them here and there. And it really does feel like one cohesive plot at the end of the world. It's an incredibly, incredibly well choreographed event. Honestly, I think it's the best prior to the most recent Secret Wars. Yeah, yeah, I would actually absolutely agree. Just in terms of coherency and modularity. Yeah, and apparently lots of other people agreed because we got a ton of follow-ups. Now, for me, Age of Apocalypse from 95 and a couple of its follow-up stories are an event with a beginning, a middle, and an end, and I really like it that way. But we have a ton of sequel stuff. I was looking at everything that we put into our Marvel Unlimited library as we were preparing <laughs> for this. There are 88 Age of Apocalypse-related issues, and that's not even counting all the little tie-ins from, like, X-Man and Exiles and, like, even a Hulk miniseries. Not to mention anything that's not on Marvel Unlimited. Yeah, so uh, there's a lot. Now, as for why it happened, I actually really like this bit of trivia, which I, I think is accurate. My favorite thing about it is that it means that we get to cite one of my favorite books, which we haven't brought up in a very, 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 very long time. Because according to Terry Kavanaugh from an interview in Marvel Comics, The Untold Story, The Age of Apocalypse was X-Men editor Bob Harris's attempt to not have the X-Men be overshadowed by the big Spider-Man clone saga story. And 
if you've heard of the Clone Saga, you've probably heard of it mentioned with a bitter twist of the lip or a shake of the head. It's not very well remembered, even though it sold like hotcakes, whereas Age of Apocalypse very much is. That's the story where Peter Parker turned out to be the clone and Ben Riley was the original, but then they switched it again. Yeah, it was a story so unpopular that the big resolution just got completely undone. Kind of like the ending of Grant Morrison's run, now that I think about it. Not so much like the ending of Age of Apocalypse. You know how it was always Inferno for a very, very, very long time? Uh-huh. It's always Age of Apocalypse from here, because even when the world ostensibly ends, bits of it are going to bleed back into the 616, and... While that timeline isn't going to be erased, it is legitimately going to be substantially changed by what happened here. Yeah, and I love that. I love that it doesn't end with, but it was all a dream. Like, as much as we go back to normal, there are little bits of the AOA that are just around forever. Some of which are creepier than others. I'm looking at you, sugar man, you weird jerk. Alright, so... You mentioned you had access to something that was not on Marvel Unlimited. I don't have this, but you've got a physical copy of the X-Men Collector's Preview of the Year of the Mutants. I do. I specifically remember looking through it as Age of Apocalypse was about to come out, and it blew my young mind. It was actually what sold me on not dropping all of my Marvel books, because I was mad about the world ending and about all the books being rebooted. But this was intriguing, and it remains intriguing, although what's not intriguing is going to what turned out to be my bottom short box in my giant pile of them in my closet, but eh, what can you do? I mean, it's always that one. It always is, but it had a really cool flip cover, so like on one side were the 90s X-Men that we know and love, and they're very 90s designs, and then when you flipped it over, it was a bunch of Age of Apocalypse characters in the same poses. Like, not the same characters necessarily, but it really did just show so clearly how much everything had changed. And in this book, we have all kinds of interviews. We have them with Scott Lobdell, Fabian Estesa, John Francis Moore, you know, writers that were working on the event. We have character designs with notes. We have a freaking Fred Hembeck cartoon. I love Fred Hembeck. And we have this really cool set of in-universe descriptions of all the characters by Magneto himself. We also have a random article about what was coming up in the X-Men cartoon, which is totally unrelated to the Age of Apocalypse, but I was the exact right age and the exact right type of fan to be excited anyway. Does Magneto have a burn book? Uh, kind of. It's kind of like Strife's Strike File, although not as much like Strife's Strike File as Age of Apocalypse The Chosen, another one-shot that came out, which is Apocalypse basically talking shit about all of the heroes and villains of the AOA. (laughs) He really is that guy. He totally is. But in this collector's preview, there are a couple really cool tidbits. I mean, there are a bunch, but we'll be talking about them over the next many episodes. But a couple things to bring up are that the original idea that led into AOA was the idea of Jubilee waking up in the X-Mansion, but everything being different. Like, the wrong people are claiming to be the X-Men, and only she remembers how things are supposed to be. Now, that actually led directly to the Phalanx Covenant storyline, Generation Next, where the same thing basically happens to Banshee, and it turns out all the X-Men are really, like, robot techno-organic duplicates. But it also led to Age of Apocalypse because Jubilee's role in that description, that's going to be taken by Bishop from the main timeline in Age of Apocalypse. I'm trying to imagine how different Age of Apocalypse would have been with Jubilee in the Bishop role. I, uh, I feel like Marvel made the right choice on this one, as much as I love Jubilee. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. But I, I would imagine that that must have come out of the animated series where she was basically the viewpoint character at this point. Yeah, no, it, it would have made perfect sense. And I think that's part of why she was in the role she was in in Generation Next and in a lot of X-Men for that matter. Apparently, the idea of canceling and renaming all the books, though, that was Fabian Nassiez's idea specifically. And I got to say, good work, Fabian. As much as you pissed Child Miles off, like, it's kind of awesome. Fabian Nassiez, from, from whence come all good things of the 90s. Quite a few of them, anyway. Now, there was also a one-shot I was really hoping I could dig out of those short boxes, but I don't know what the hell happened to it. I mean, maybe I got rid of it, maybe I gave it to somebody, maybe it was lost in a move. It might be somewhere in a short box in my closet because we we did a lot of sort of temporary shifting around of X-Books when I moved out to New York. I pr Probably, in fact, in the back of the bottom one. Oh, well, uh, you know, if you have a chance. But this was the Age of Apocalypse Ashcan. I think we mentioned the idea of Ashcan comics when we were talking about Scott and Jean's wedding, but it's basically a small comic. So the cover of this Ashcan issue was the first page of X-Men number one, like the 60s one, but on fire. The inside was a bunch of two-page spreads, each talking about one of the old books that we knew transforming into its Age of Apocalypse replacement. So, like, you know... In the new timeline, the X-Men were never founded by Xavier, they never recruited so-and-so, they never fought so-and-so, but in their place, Magneto did this. And it really, really got me pumped for all of the new books. Like, that was another thing that convinced me to give Age of Apocalypse a try. And man, we have got to dig up that copy at some point. Yeah, we will. So all of that said, what we're going to start with today in our first Age of Apocalypse episode, is a one-shot called X-Men Alpha, which basically introduces all of the books that are going to follow. And I'm really excited to talk about it. It's a very, very fancy comic. It is. It has this beautiful chromium wraparound cover that of course made it more expensive, but of course I loved it anyway, and I still do, damn it, showing all of the new X-Men characters charging forward toward... I don't know, something. Yeah, they're charging toward the future, the universe designation, the battle. The battle. There's a lot of fighting in this, so that makes sense. But with this issue, the story is by Scott Lobdell, the dialogue is by Mark Wade, pencils are by Roger Cruz with Steve Epting, and inks are by Tim Townsend with Dan Panosian, colors are, are by Steve Bucolato with Electric Crayon. So Roger Cruz does most of the art in this. There's just a little bit of fill-in by Steve Epting, and I assume the inker split is the same way. Probably because things were running late, because things were always running late for Marvel in the 90s. Mostly it just means that a couple of the characters look really jarringly different from one page to another, but overall it works. Well, most notably Sinister, who has the excuse of being Sinister. True, true. So where does our journey into the Age of Apocalypse begin, Jay? On a pile of corpses. How fortuitous. It is an appropriate introduction to the world, though, because the impression we get is that this is in fact the state of most of North America, if not most of Earth. Yeah, there's this cloaked and bandaged mystery man climbing a mountain of freaking corpses in Seattle, Washington. And Roger Cruz really does capture just the scale of the horrific slaughter. Like, there are literal mountains of corpses stretching all the way to the horizon where there are these shattered, burning skyscrapers. This world looks absolutely terrible. And as much as there's a lot of cool shit in it, I don't want to be there. Also, based on Seattle's general humidity level, I bet it's extra gross. 
It is. And in fact, uh, the narrator talks about how the uh, unnamed traveler wishes it would rain like Seattle's famous for just so it would cut down on the smell, which, you know, fair enough. But we learn a number of things from more narrator captions. Mutants have taken over North America, and their infinites, whatever those are, have slaughtered all the humans who didn't flee the continent. In this world, Apocalypse struck pretty earlier. Earlier? Pretty earlier. In this world, Apocalypse struck pretty early, way earlier than he did in Earth 616. It sounds like. Xavier dying, which is mentioned briefly, that's not something that Apocalypse even noticed. Presumably in Legion Quest, the story leading up to this, Apocalypse just noticed a bunch of mutants fighting each other in Israel and figured, all right, I'm gonna do my thing. There was some kind of fundamental shift that made him decide that it was time to rise, and that in combination with the absence of the X-Men meant that he rose, if not wholly unopposed, then not with sufficient opposition to even really make a dent in his ascension. Not to go into too much spoilery detail from House of X and Powers of Ten, but this specific event is one of the biggest things that uh, Moira was trying to prevent from occurring. So uh, in Age of Apocalypse, we, we found out why, because it would be terrible. Now, as we mentioned in the cold open, Earth-295 is a little bit of an outlier. It's a rare case of an alternate timeline overriding an original one rather than branching off from it. And I do appreciate that that's actually addressed in the plot, but not until way later, so I think we can just talk about it and analyze it then, when we get to it. Absolutely, but I want to seed it here because part of the advantage of going back to Age of Apocalypse now, when we've got not only the big picture of the entire event, but another several decades of tie-ins and continuity and stuff like that, is that we can really get an aerial view of this massive, massive sprawling thing and see intersections that wouldn't necessarily have been visible at the time. Oh yeah, this is an event that works really well in retrospect, knowing where it's all going. I, I love that about it. In the plot, though, our hooded mysterious man silently comforts a surviving little girl who's running away, and we meet who she's running away from. These are the aforementioned infinites. They're also called the Fedayeen. Later on, those will be two different groups. That is one of the things that is is ambiguous uh, editorially, but, you know, whatever. The point being, these green robot Mega Man-looking enemies are led by a guy named Prelate Eunice. Eunice may be a familiar name because Eunice the Untouchable, a dude with a force field who the X-Men beat by increasing his force field so he couldn't eat pie, was one of the earliest X-Men villains. And that's something Age of Apocalypse keeps doing. It keeps showing us characters who we're familiar with in situations and roles that we're not expecting, and it keeps showing us a bunch of obscure random characters. It's a continual surprise. I love it. It also introduces enough new characters that if you're not already deeply, deeply immersed in the X-Men and Marvel mythos in general, you might not know which is which. Totally, yeah. But one of the things we see in addition to this world being an unexpected place for the X-Men fan is the perpetual apocalypse tech. It's just everywhere. It is ubiquitous. Like, I really appreciate that kind of... I don't know, it manages to be both jagged and harsh, but also to have a lot of soft Epcot Center retro-futuristic lines to it. Like, there's something about apocalypse tech that is uniquely apocalypse, and that is consistent across all of the books in this crossover. 
I want to take a second to distinguish the state of this world from the other one we've seen at this point where Apocalypse ruled, that being the Ascani timeline, where we saw the Phoenix miniseries and where we saw the Cyclops and Phoenix uh, miniseries a bit later. So in that world, Apocalypse had been through multiple reincarnations. He was old, he was decrepit, he was barely hanging on to power, and the world had kind of devolved into a state of kind of continual decadence within the circles of power, and outside there was really flourishing human and mutant community and fairly active rebellion. Like, that world was much less at the height of conflict than this one. This one, Apocalypse has cemented his rule but it's not quite absolute in the ways that is in that one. Like, that is a world coming back from Apocalypse. This is a world that is about to fall completely. Yeah. And our mystery figure is part of why, because the prelate's scanners show that, hey, this dude is a mutant. Why would a mutant be helping a human? What's up with that? But before they can execute him, we hear a surprising voice. Not so fast. After all, we traitors like to stick together. And the page turn takes us to the X-Men. But not X-Men as we know them. Because for one thing, the spokesperson of this team is freaking Sabretooth. The biggest jerk in the X-Mansion by far. The incredibly murdery, oh, barely sympathetic asshole that has threatened to kill Jubilee like six different times in the last week. Suddenly... All of the spotlight that Sabretooth has gotten in Earth-616 pays off, and I love it so much. I think this is a brilliant reveal, because a lot of the time, the classic twist when you have someone dropped in a new universe is to have a character who looks like they should be sympathetic turn out to be a villain. This is the reverse, and it throws you off in ways that I don't think it would if they'd, they'd been like, oh my gosh, and here's Evil Beast! Right, I mean, we get him later. But Sabretooth is also the intro to another previous villain who's now a hero, because in this crowd of X-Men, they are led by freaking Magneto. And they're led by Magneto looking like Magneto. This is not Magneto reskinned as Professor X. This is not Magneto leading Professor X's X-Men. These are Magneto's X-Men, and it is visible in their look, which is quite a look. Oh, it is. Uh, even Magneto in the same costume, he still has, like, super long white hair and braids sticking out from under it because the Age of Apocalypse is the age of amazing hair. But who else do we have, Jay? Going from among the best to, I think, among the worst showings on the costume front is Rogue. She's got this regal green and yellow looking outfit, which cleverly feels a lot like Magneto's. She has the same kind of riveted collar to it. And between that and their body language, it becomes immediately clear Magneto and Rogue are a couple in this universe. Now, that's not without precedent in the 616, but still, damn. So that riveted collar is something we see on multiple characters. Sabretooth has it too. And my general feelings about it are that... It only works proportionally on dudes who are drawn the way dudes were drawn in the 90s. I mean, it would work on women who are drawn the way dudes were drawn in the 90s, too, but none are. So on Rogue, it just it looks almost clownish because it's so it's so bulky relative to her frame. 
Yeah, yeah, you're not wrong. I mean, I kind of love her look here, but I think a lot of that is is nostalgia. Do you think she cut her hair because it kept on getting tangled in it? Oh, absolutely. Like, it would totally get stuck around one of those rivets. I'm just saying, as someone with very long, very thick hair, it gets stuck in freaking everything. I think my other complaint here is that I don't like her haircut, which is is kind of a major problem in the Age of Apocalypse, and I, I think I think a big part of the source of my antipathy towards this costume. In a timeline where almost everyone gets glammed up, Rogue gets a sensible bob. Yeah, yeah, I feel like doing anything sensibly in the Age of Apocalypse is maybe not a great move. Well, and this is Rogue, whose signature thing is having real kick-ass enormous hair. True. Thankfully, she's still an awesome character in Age of Apocalypse, so there's that. We also have, on the team, Quicksilver, Storm, Iceman, and Nightcrawler. They're all recognizable, but they're all harsher and more intimidating looking than in the 616. Some of them have face tattoos, almost all of them have, like, additional armor on their costumes. So, the origin of the face tattoos is nebulous. Some of them we know are markings from the breeding pits, but they're common enough among Apocalypse's lieutenants that that can't be all they are. And a listener sent in a pretty rad retcon proposal, um, which is that they're anti-facial re- recognition camouflage. And I really now want to you know, paint my face up and see which ones of them actually work for that. Oh, man. Okay, I feel like now, as we introduce different characters, we need to rate their facial tattoos. So, Storm's got kind of a cool one. It's like a black line over one of her eyes. Looks a little like a lightning bolt. It's it's pretty standard. It's not too exciting. Nightcrawler has like a big red thing over one part of his face. I kind of dig that, especially when his face is in shadow. Yeah, that contrasts really, really nicely with his fur. Totally. We also have a character with Sabretooth, who's not going to be familiar to most X-Men readers, but would be to some other Marvel readers. This is Wild Child, a mid-level Alpha Flight character in the main universe. He's this sort of spindly, sharp, long-fingernailed, feral dude. Not like Feral the X-Force character, but Feral with a lowercase f. And it becomes clear pretty quickly that most of the time, Sabretooth knocks him out and carries him around over his shoulder as the two of them are connected with a chain, and he just wakes Wildchild up when there's a fight and basically throws them at his enemies. It's very dark and very fucked up and, for some reason, hilarious to me. That is not how traumatic brain injury works. No, no, but I mean, it's the Age of Apocalypse. This isn't how a lot of things work, and I love it for that. Maybe he's not actually hitting him, he's just trained Wild Child to sort of fall over and go floppy and, or, ooh, or maybe Wild Child kind of works like a fainting goat? I was just thinking the same thing right as you were about to say it. Alright listeners, you heard it here first, Wild Child is canonically a fainting goat. But he's not because he goes limp. Oh, oh, that's true. Well, he's a mutant, so, you know, he works differently than other fainting goats. Kind of pushing it here. Flat scan fainting goats. We also have a character we have seen before, but not as we've seen her. We have Blink, the purple girl that died in Phalanx Covenant Generation Next with the really cool teleportation shredding powers. She is here, but in a really badass, super sexified ninja dress thing. So I'm actually going to take issue with that because I love Blink's Age of Apocalypse costume. Yeah, it's slid up to her hips, but it's slid up to her hips in ways that make sense mobility-wise. It's got a fairly high neckline. It looks like you could wear it with a sports bra. And it's not less age-appropriate than a gymnastics leotard. Yeah, yeah, I think my only real objection is that the long dress part that uh, is not 
slit uh, would probably get tangled around her feet. But she looks freaking cool. And I think it works really well that when we previously saw Clarice in the main universe, she was this incredibly shy, incredibly fearful, shrinking violet. You, You see what I did there? And here, she is brash, she is an action hero, she is flipping all around and throwing purple spikes at people. Like, again, all of the severe contrasts we're seeing from Earth-616 to Earth-295, they all work to just show us what an alien, different version of the world this is. You're going to want to keep an eye on Blink because she is going to be one of the major breakout characters of Age of Apocalypse, figuratively and literally. Yeah, she's also a main character in The Gifted, which is a show I will never stop trying to convince people to watch and probably will never succeed in doing so, but still. <sighs> may it rest in peace. Or may it come back, actually. May it may it claw, claw itself up from the grave. Ideally. The last character we have is probably in some ways the most surprising. We have a character named Morph. And in 1995, if you were a young X-Men fan especially, you would have known that name from the cartoon as the name of the character that got offed in one of the first couple episodes to show how badass the bad guys were. So, I think Morph is a brilliant choice here to import for a couple reasons. The first is that he is absolutely not a character who fits the setting at first glance. He is... He is he is the silly comic relief talks in silly voices shapeshifts wants to be everyone's best friend character. However, as Miles mentioned in the cartoon, he gets at least apparently killed very very early on. He is and he he comes back really screwed up. So he's got a history and a context that I think in some ways kind of both establish him in contrast to the world, and establish just how broken the world is. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. And he's, once again, another example of a very different character because his Earth-616 equivalent is Changeling, the guy with, like, the big purple three-dimensional asterisk on his head who impersonated Professor Xavier and then died. Yeah, yeah, it's this guy. Everyone needs a hobby. Actually, one of the things I really like is that Characters' counterparts in terms of roles in Earth-295 are not necessarily their direct counterparts, as in their equivalent characters from another universe. So the most obvious example here is Sabretooth, because in a lot of ways in Earth-295, role-wise, Sabretooth and Wolverine are kind of swapped. Sabretooth is much more the good guy with dark past, and Wolverine is much more just a raging asshole. Pretty much, yeah. Um, And Morph here kind of occupies the role of Iceman, who is sort of the same as he was before, but murdery. In fact, we see just how murdery these X-Men are because they just tear the infinites apart. They are so much more violent and harsh than the X-Men are in Earth-616. They even kill one infinite after he surrenders. So this establishes a couple things. The first is how high the stakes are and how much the Age of Apocalypse changes the playing field. The second is what Magneto's X-Men look like. Yeah, and it makes sense because Magneto has always been more of a pragmatist. He's always been harsher than Xavier. And as much as he's trying to live up to the dream of his friend who was killed so far in the past, he's doing it in his own Magneto way. Especially when the world is so freaking dangerous like it is in the Age of Apocalypse. 
you're right that he does things in his own Magneto way, and there's one thing that Magneto will do, I think, regardless the timeline, and that is declaim. As he says at the end of the battle, Once more, the X-Men stand victorious, atop the ashes of those who have paid the ultimate price for genetic intolerance. The soldiers of Apocalypse jackboot ever forward, with each step crushing any hope that humans and mutants might someday exist in harmony. Wait, on Earth-295 is Magneto also the angry narrator? Yeah, kind of. To think that I, too, once believed in mutant's rule. And Quicksilver asks... You, Father. I, I cannot imagine. I take no pride in the memory, Pietro. It was a fleeting notion spurred by the arrogance of youth, and quelled by the spirit of a long-dead friend. But for his grace, Magneto would surely have become mankind's greatest foe. His name was Charles Xavier, and he was the greatest man I have ever known. Can we talk about Magneto's big blue anime eyes? They totally are. Like, Joe Matarera doesn't draw this issue, but it's pretty clear that Roger Cruz was going for that style. And so everybody just has these gigantic liquid eyes. And I don't know, that's just what the Age of Apocalypse looks like to me, I guess. I'm really okay with that. Yup. And Magneto wonders how he could have failed Charles so badly. I mean, this world is utterly fucked. Magneto's not the only one who blames, well, Magneto, for what happened, as they'll find out shortly. Because having rescued him from the, the Infinites, they unmask the stranger, who, it turns out, is Bishop. So what's, what's Bishop like in this timeline? Well, for starters, he looks really different. He's still got the M tattoo over his eye, but he's bald, and he's got this sort of mechanical something or other coming into his other eye. That is never explained, but according to the character designs in that collector's preview we were talking about, Tony Daniel, the artist who designed Bishop, intended this to be an implant from when Bishop was in prison, and the idea is that the warden of that prison could spy through Bishop's cybernetic eye to see what Bishop was up to, and... If the warden didn't like what Bishop was doing, he would use these implants along Bishop's arm and spine to send, like, electricity and pain through him. That's why Bishop's wearing this gigantic baggy cloak outfit to cover up all the robotic stuff. I really love that people thought this stuff through, even though it never made it into the comic. What's very clear in Bishop's design is that he has been through some shit. Now, the presence of the M tattoo is interesting because it firmly establishes this Bishop— as one who's still from the future, and specifically from the future of Earth-616. Exactly, yeah, because as you'll remember from the ending of Legion Quest, the only X-Man who made it out of reality being rewritten was Bishop. He was a time anomaly, and he sort of got shunted sideways as reality was rebuilt. Apparently, he got shunted, as is, into the Age of Apocalypse. But the Age of Apocalypse 20 years ago, back in the 70s. So for the last 20 years, Bishop has been making his way from Tel Aviv to Seattle as the world has gotten more and more screwed up. And we learn from the narration that he hasn't spoken in 20 years, which I gotta say is such a Lucas Bishop thing to do. Lucas Bishop, you freaking drama queen. He was just sulking the whole time. No, but this is, this is not the only time we're going to see Bishop in this role. He's going to be in a very similar position, or at least a somewhat parallel one in Age of X-Men, decades later. He totally will, yeah, and I love that little callback. 
And like you were saying, Jay, Bishop yells at Magneto because Bishop blames Magneto for the world having gone to hell. Bishop blames Magneto for Xavier having died in Legion Quest. It's really not Magneto's fault, but Bishop has had a singularly rough 20 years, so I think we should give him a pass on this one. We should. The X-Men, for their part, all head to Westchester, to the former X-Mansion, which in this world doesn't have much significance, because, you know, Xavier died before anybody, but Magneto really knew who he was. It is, however, effectively masked from the Sentinels, which means that they're pretty much safe here. And honestly, the fact that Xavier died before anyone could track it means that this doesn't ping anyone else's radar. And here we meet Magneto and Rogue's adorable Moppet son, Charles! Oh, Magneto named his son Charles after his dead friend. And he built Charles a robot nanny, specifically the same robot nanny he built to yell at the X-Men and feed them baby food that one time. I love that we get this Bronze Age callback. Do you think that he also did that in some form or at some point in this timeline? Uh, tried to feed the X-Men. I mean, he led the X-Men, but maybe as some kind of training exercise? Or maybe he just got really mad at them sometime. Maybe, like, I, they, they've got to have, have had a fair lot of infighting. In fact, we know they've had a fair lot of infighting. Oh, okay, so you're saying, like, when uh, Gambit got all surly or when Logan got all surly, it was baby food time. I, oh god, that would, that would explain a lot about Logan's attitude. <laughs> it really would. So, gentle listener, you may be asking yourself a question, which is, wait a minute, Rogue had a baby? Um, how did the whole, you know conception thing work and because this is sex men we do at least get a brief illusion that magneto found a way to use his powers of magnetism to do yet another thing that magnetism shouldn't really be able to do which is to have sex with rogue without getting his life energy drained out i mean i think the more pertinent issue here is fertilization that's true yeah and giving birth to charles I don't really know how it works. They don't go into a great deal of detail. Birth, I mean, they would have been sharing basically a circulatory system through birth. So up to that point, like pregnancy, I can hand wave because X-Men and stuff. And I I can see Rogue's body temporarily recognizing Charles as more Rogue. But again... Fertilization would have been an issue. It's true, it's true. So Magneto must have had a magnetically shielded sperm. You know what? We should probably move on and just see what the bad guys are up to in this universe. Repeat to yourself, it's just a show. I should really just relax. That applies to both X-Men and our podcast. It applies to a whole lot of things. Now, those are the good guys. We've seen them. They're a pretty interesting mix. Let's check in with the baddies, see who they are and what they're up to. And the first one we meet is one of the most creepy and one of the most enduring Age of Apocalypse characters. And I think also one of the most logical twists of a hero, and that is Dark Beast. Oh, Dark Beast is great. I mean, he's terrible. He's a horrible, horrible person, but he's perfect. Dark Beast is the Hank McCoy you know. He's witty, he's brilliant, he's a little silly. He's kind of socially awkward and doesn't make friends easily. He's 616 Beast with no moral compass. 
Yeah, yeah, we mostly see him doing horrible, sadistic experiments on humans and mutants alike, some to advance the scientific uh, prowess and power of his boss Apocalypse, and some seemingly just for kicks. Beast is a sadist. The obvious analog, I think the obvious character to look at Dark Beast in comparison to is Sinister, because Sinister likewise is a guy who's defined in canon by his history of horribly unethical experiments on on sentience. And the difference here is that Sinister, for the most part, is very, very goal-oriented. He doesn't really think of the people he's experimenting on as as mattering, but because, because he's focused on a larger goal. They're a means to an end. For Beast, the means are the end. As Miles mentioned, he's a sadist, but he's also just really curious, and he doesn't really give a fuck who he's taking apart as long as he gets to see the clockwork. Exactly. And unlike the X-Men, where we've got a mix of 616 heroes and villains, here we get a quick series of 616 heroes who have gone evil, who are working with Beast and with Beast's boss, Sinister. We do get one 616 villain, that's Fred Dukes, who shows up for just long enough to die. But the next major villains we meet are this, the Summers brothers, who are both prelates in the Age of Apocalypse. Now, weirdly, this is one of several alternate universes where Scott and Alex Summers were raised by Mr. Sinister. Surprisingly, it is not the one where they get the most fashionable outfits. But we have got to talk about these outfits, or at least Cyclops's outfit. Cyclops has long, majestic, flowing hair. His hair is basically exactly what, if I could have mine drawn by a comic book artist, mine would look like. It is astonishing. First of all, you are mistaking outfit for hairstyle, because Cyclops actually has a super boring costume, but he's got the hair. And second... Your hair is much curlier than that. If it were drawn by a comics artist, it would probably end up being drawn by Larry Stroman. Well, that's probably true. But no, Cyclops' outfit does have some good stuff. Specifically, he's got that sort of bandolier of pouches that we see him with in the 90s and Earth 616, but it just keeps going. He's got this arm armor that basically seems like he just, like the pouches didn't want to stop, and so his arm is covered in pouches. That's how 90s this crossover is. Maybe it's inside a pouch. Maybe he reached in and was just like, nope, this is how I live now. Maybe. He also has one really interesting, thought-provoking design element, which is that his visor only covers one eye. The rest of it is both opaque and covered by an emo hair flop. Cyclops is literally a Cyclops in this world. Miles, that is not an emo hair flop. That is a glam hair flop. It's a very, very different thing. You can usually tell the difference based on volume. But yeah, Cyclops has one eye, Wolverine has one hand. These are for related reasons. It's true. Cyclops and Havoc, they freaking hate each other in this universe. They do. This is specifically what happens when you don't separate the Summers brothers as kids, so you don't get the whole, like, incredibly relieved, tearful reunion and perpetual gratitude at both being alive later, but also when they're raised by Sinister, who does everything he can to deliberately force a wedge between them. Because Mr. Sinister is a really bad parent. Now, the Summers brothers in this universe also, and I feel like we're kind of burying the lead here, are super definitely major war criminals. Oh, they're, they're awful, yeah. I mean, they're both working for Apocalypse's horrific dystopian society in ways that just reinforce all the evil shit that it does. 
Yeah. So Havoc is the head of security and he's probably the less pleasant person. But honestly, when it comes to general ethics, he probably at least to this point comes out just ahead of Cyclops, who is in charge of Apocalypse or rather Sinister's breeding pens. Yeah, that's that's basically what it sounds like. It's um, it's not great. I think, honestly, that this is one of the places where this book makes a major misstep. Not in putting Cyclops in this role, but in putting Cyclops in this role and then doing its best to develop him as the more sympathetic of those two. Because, honestly, like, that's so far over any reasonable moral event horizon. That, yeah, he does some good stuff later and he comes to question things and, you know, he would probably turn on his masters and make some kind of deal with the good guys. But major war criminal is definitely still his defining feature in this universe. Oh, yeah. Well, this major war criminal goes out for a conversation with Mr. Sinister, and we get this gorgeous two-page spread of this flaming, smoggy, golden tech city, all apocalypse-style future tech. It is both awe-inspiring and horrifying, and that's about what you want for the Age of Apocalypse. Now, a couple of things become clear in this conversation in the preceding scene. The first is that Scott is definitely the favored Summers brother. No one cares about Alex, even though he has either a really rad facial tattoo or really rad face paint. I'm not sure which, and it really looks like face paint to me, which is kind of funny because I like the idea of Alex being like, maybe I'll look cooler if I do this. Now I'm just imagining him with like the kitty cat face paint that you can get at the county fair or whatever. Oh, he's just been trying different motifs for years, trying to find something that'll work. It's no, it's it, it, he, what he ends up with is a very proto men look, so I'm I'm down with it. But um, in some ways, and and one of the things again that's interesting here is that despite this horrific moral event horizon, in some ways Scott is still very much Scott, which is an interesting touch. So when Sinister says, "Yeah, I need to go away for a while," Scott's first response is to assume that it's because he's done something wrong. Oh, Scott, you rascally war criminal, you. Yeah, universes in which Scott Summers is reasonably well-adjusted and has self-confidence. One of them. Now, Sinister is actually going off to mess with Nate Gray, but that's a whole other miniseries. Now, it's Horseman time. The Horsemen kind of suffer from the Age of Apocalypse, because in the normal universe, they've got dramatic roles specific to the classic Four Horsemen. In the Age of Apocalypse, they're more like high-ranking and overly dramatic government ministers. Yeah, and we get the impression that there have been a lot of horsemen in the past, but they kill each other a lot, so we're either down to four, or these are just the current four. We don't know what their official roles are. That's not really gone into. So I actually went ahead and um, gave them official horsemen designations. Ooh. So let's go through the list. First, first up, I'm going to go with the two who have 616 counterparts, Sinister. The Horseman of Style. Yeah. Per usual, Sinister is secretly working to overthrow Apocalypse because Earth is where he keeps his weird, weird stuff. This Sinister is mostly defined by his confusing facial hair. I appreciate that this version of Sinister's cape is much less giant and dramatic than in the 616. It's just a few ribbons. Because in this universe, he's actually not trying to stand out as much, so he can be a more effective schemer. I love that this is Sinister trying to be subtle. I mean, honestly, compared to everybody else in the Age of Apocalypse, he's kind of succeeding. 
We're going to see a lot of more of him in the X-Men miniseries, which brings us on to Mikhail Rasputin, the horseman of some other stuff. The horseman of miscellaneous. So, yeah, pretty much. He's he's the horseman of, you know, whatever else. He mostly hangs out in Europe, where the humans still mostly rule, and or the Midwest, which is his domain that Apocalypse has granted him. Uh, we'll see a lot more of him in X-Universe, the book about the human rebellion. I love that his domain is the Midwest. That fits so well. Now, Mikhail's whole thing is that he makes a big deal about being magnanimous to humans, and... This is, I think, one of the better creepy adaptations of a character who is legitimately very creepy in the 616. That paternalism, that setting himself up as a savior, is very, very consistent with his original version. Agreed. Who's number three? Well, now we're moving on to new characters. So next up, we've got Abyss. This is the horseman of cool teens. He's new. His name is Nils. He's a very fun-looking, slightly ghost rider dude. He looks like he's kind of made of springs or something. Kind of those weird coils that were all over the 90s. Anyway, he can draw power from fear, and he probably knows some cool skateboard tricks. We'll see more of him in the Amazing X-Men miniseries. And he is one of the original... Age of Apocalypse characters that we'll see coming over to 616 in a different way. Those are the original Age of Apocalypse folks whose 616 counterparts will be introduced after the end of the Age of Apocalypse. Which brings us to the final horseman. This is Holocaust, the horseman of having the worst name, and he is Apocalypse's garbage son. I was thinking while I was reading this, and it got stuck in my head, and now I stand by it really firmly, that Holocaust is the Bobby Newport of the Age of Apocalypse. Oh god, you're right, but that means he would be played by Paul Rudd and would be kind of sympathetic. You know, I'm I'm okay with the first part of that. He's, he's Apocalypse's son. He's horrible, but he also just wants his dad to like him. And like he calls Apocalypse father every other line of dialogue, and he he's 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 the kid who's totally gonna tattle on everyone else if they screw up, and he's he, he's killed like two of the other horsemen over the years. He's really murdery. He is. He's had a cool design though. He's like this uh, in this big translucent transparent armor, and inside is just a bunch of lava and a skeleton. It's quite striking. You know, I'm gonna go ahead and say Sunfire does it better. That's probably true. I also sort of get the feeling with Holocaust that it's not that he had any kind of particular motive for murdering the other guys. He just got petulant and threw a tantrum, and when he throws tantrums, you know, massive nuclear fire. We'll see more of him in the Astonishing X-Men series. I want to go back for a second, though, because we have talked about Holocaust before on this show, and that's because he was introduced. He's one of two Age of Apocalypse characters who was introduced in Strife's Burn book. He was, as a very different version of himself, but same dude. Now, why has Apocalypse gathered them all here, other than presumably to talk about the new health plan? Well, he's gathered all of them here, except for Mikhail, who's, you know, off hanging out in Europe or the Midwest or something. He's gathered them here to break the news that they are going to wipe out all of humanity all across the world, despite the Kelly Pact that is theoretically a truce between the two species. And I gotta say, this is one of the places where the art shifts between the two artists, between Cruz and Epting, and it's especially jarring because this is the first time we see Apocalypse. And on one page, he's this cartoony Mega Man X-looking villain, and on the next page, he's this realistically gritty robot man. 
he's got a very straightforward, very simple regal design. He's just like a blue dude with a bunch of little robot accents and some red trim. And so it kind of works for either style and it's confusing. Yeah, I'm okay with that shift. Um, I think, again, I think it's jarring mid book, but I think one of the strengths of this design is that it really works well across art styles. Agreed, yeah. Now, Sinister is not into Apocalypse's plan to to wipe out humanity because it's totally going to fuck up his own secret plans, which are many and intricate. Holocaust is totally into this because he's a suck-up and also likes killing everybody. And that brings us to, I think, one of the best settings in Age of Apocalypse. We've seen the heroes, we've seen the villains. What's the neutral ground? One of the neutral places is called Heaven. And it's basically a high-end nightclub run by Angel in sort of the Age of Apocalypse equivalent of Lando's outfit from Cloud City. And he's encouraging his party guests to admire the sentinels going by outside. Everybody is safe in here. It's all glamorous and luxurious. And I love this angel. Now, if this concept reminds you of a certain musical, you should know that there are going to be two characters playing out something fairly close to the plot of Cabaret in this nightclub over the course of the Age of Apocalypse. Yup. I really like that in Age of Apocalypse, Angel is specifically not Archangel. He's doing really well. He's, like, taking the billionaire playboy thing in an Age of Apocalypse direction, but he's still basically a billionaire playboy. He's got lots of friends, everybody pays attention to him, he's really rich. The thing that happened to him in 616, where his body got replaced by Horseman of Death technology? Yeah, not so much. He's thriving here. Yeah, there's no reason that that would have happened in this timeline, which is... Again, a really good, really interesting, and really ironic twist that Apocalypse has ascended to rule. He's had much less direct influence on Warren Worthington III. Yup. We find out that the star singer at Heaven at this club is Scarlet. You know, from Havoc and Wolverine Meltdown. And literally nothing else. Yeah, like the spy lady. And sure enough, she and Havoc, we're going to find out, totally have a thing going on. But what's relevant right now is another person at the club, and that is Gambit. Dude, I legitimately and unashamedly love Age of Apocalypse Gambit. I mean, he's a dick, but he's got a great character design. Oh yeah, he looks like a D&D rogue, but with post-apocalyptic elements. It's like this medieval thief scavenger thing going on. And he's here to talk to Angel to find out where Magneto and the X-Men are hiding. What makes you think I can help you? Because Angel spelled sideways as Angle. If anyone knows how to get to him, it's you. Well, he's half right. (laughs) I mean, spelling sideways, I don't know, it's like stepping sideways in Werewolf the Apocalypse. We don't think too hard about it. Other locations, though, we also learn about London, because Mr. Sinister, part of his secret plan is to feed information to a couple of mutants, and those mutants are Logan and Jean Grey. Logan in this world, he's not Wolverine, some other guy's Wolverine, Logan just goes by Weapon X. Jean Grey just goes by, eh, Jean Grey, still. She has fucking awesome hair, though. Oh yeah, it's this short, punky haircut. She also has a rad face tattoo that, like, covers a lot of her face. It's all jagged and badass. She's got this red and black outfit with hellish shoulder pads. I love Jean's look. She just exudes power and confidence. She is definitely one of the more unambiguously glam rock of the Age of Apocalypse mutants. 
Now, Logan has enormous goddamn hair. We've seen him with big hair. This is maybe the biggest his hair has ever been. Not the longest it's ever been. That was Havoc and Wolverine Meltdown, but maybe just the most massive. He's also wearing black and red that matches Jean's outfit, which is clever because they're a couple. And like we alluded to earlier, he's missing one of his hands. Instead, he's just got a metal cap covering the stump. Now, these two are in London to meet with the Human High Council. And the Human High Council, the leader of the Human Rebellion, they're based out of a smashed Big Ben, which is so dramatic and also must be so drafty, because there are, like, tons of holes in the glass and the walls, and that can't be comfortable. I assume this is only where they have their official meetings. Oh, okay. Uh, And in the Council, we have Moira McTaggart and her husband, Boulevard Trask. You know, the guy who in the main universe made the Sentinels? We also have Brian Braddock, makes sense, prominent wealthy human, and Emma Frost. And it's not really explained here, but she has half a shaved head and a big thick scar on the part that's shaved. It's implied that she basically lobotomized herself to stop being a mutant and is now working with the humans, which is a really cool concept. And I think it's explained a lot in one of the sequel series, but for now it's just sort of ambiguous. It's just a neat little plot confusion note. That is how neither mutations nor lobotomies work, but sure, we'll take it. Age of Apocalypse. So anyway, we've seen a lot of the world, but let's finish up back in Westchester, back at the X-Men's headquarters, because the X-Men are currently trying to figure out what to do with this very angry bald man who keeps yelling about the present day being wrong and about how history should have been different. I mean, except for the last part, it could just as well be Charles Xavier. Yeah, well, true. The team doesn't have any telepaths because, while Xavier's dead, Jean Grey is off having awesome chemistry with Logan, and Psylocke just sort of doesn't show up in the Age of Apocalypse until one of the sequel series. So their best bet is something a little different than telepathy. And that is Rogue. She's going to use her powers to absorb people's, not skills and abilities, but memories in this case, with touch, to get into Bishop's mind. And Magneto is going to use his increasingly ambiguous magnetic powers to shield her from that somehow. Yeah, magnetism is real special in the Age of Apocalypse. It's like Silver Age special here. Oh yeah. And when that happens, we get this gorgeous two-page spread of 32 years of 616 Magneto history. We have all these little spotlights to all these different Magneto stories from the Silver Age to right up until 1995 in Legion Quest, And Magneto freaks the fuck out because suddenly he kind of believes this guy. He kind of believes that there was this entire other world where Magneto was a supervillain and things went totally different and where Apocalypse hadn't wrecked the planet. Oh, shit. Before this can get too much further and we can get too much into that part where Magneto was de-aged into a baby and then raised by Moira because there was a mustache stranger and mutant alpha and whatever... (laughs) Uh, Gambit appears out of fucking nowhere to knock Rogue away before the psychic feedback can fuck her up. Because as we remember, Gambit was trying to figure out where the X-Men were. This is why Magneto summoned him. Things get real awkward. Clearly there's some bad blood between Gambit and the dude who's married to the woman who in the main universe is Gambit's girlfriend. That gets especially awkward when Gambit hears about the fact that they have a kid. This is news to him. Now, Magneto, to his credit... When he sees, you know, 32 years of his own alternate history of supervillainy, figures that it's probably worth investigating. So he's going to launch a couple limited series. 
First off, he's gonna send Nightcrawler to find Nightcrawler's mom, Mystique. And in this universe, they've known that they were related for a long time. In this universe, I believe that Sabretooth is Nightcrawler's father, although that's never really commented on between those two characters. Magneto's gonna send Gambit to... Well, we don't find out here, but spoilers, he's gonna send him to space! Lila Cheney's in that series. Magneto's also going to send Generation Next, the X-Men trainees, led by Colossus and Shadowcat, on a mission, but that's not even mentioned at all here. And all of the other X-Men are awaiting Magneto's word on what they're going to be up to, on what is going to happen as the world is ending, as Apocalypse is about to wipe everybody out, and as it turns out, as reality might need to be overwritten. Because you'd think that this Earth has just replaced the 616 when the 616 was wiped out by the Emkron crystal wave launched by Legion killing Xavier. You would think wrong because that crystal wave has crossed dimensions and now it's coming for the Age of Apocalypse. And that is how the issue ends, with the stakes so, so high. And I love it! So... That's the Age of Apocalypse, and that was one of my introductions to the X-Men. And it's, again, it's a hell of a jumping on point, because it does a very good job of just throwing you into the middle of this very, very high-stakes story. So, we should say the Age of Apocalypse is going to be where we're hanging our hats for a long, long time. This is a big event, it's a lot of continuity, and get comfortable, because... This, this is becoming Jay and Miles explain the Age of Apocalypse for not quite the foreseeable future, but a lot of it. A lot of it. Because there were so many series. All the X-Books were replaced with Age of Apocalypse equivalents, and we're going to be talking about all of them. So just to briefly do a point by point, Astonishing X-Men and Amazing X-Men replace X-Men and Uncanny X-Men. X-Force becomes Gambit and the Externals. Generation X becomes Generation Next. Excalibur becomes Excalibur, spelled differently. X-Factor becomes Factor X, Wolverine becomes Weapon X, Cable becomes X-Man, and nothing in particular becomes X-Universe. Well, the rest of Marvel becomes X-Universe. And at the end of that, we have X-Men Omega to wrap it all up. But before we jump into that, we're going to do some backstory, because there were two issues of X-Men Chronicles, replacing X-Men Unlimited, and two Tales from the Age of Apocalypse one-shots that came out a little later, but still tie in really well. This is also a really, really rich universe, so we're going to take our time going through here and also try to take some time every episode to spotlight an aspect of the world and the building of it that goes on. That said, for the most part, we're going to be sticking with the Age of Apocalypse event. We'll go on occasional forays into later stuff that happened here, but mostly that stuff is on the back burner. It's there for the future. Yeah, yeah, the bleak bleak, bleak sequel series. Oh god, they're bleak. What's less bleak are our listeners, and you have questions. Hubza asks on Tumblr, What character created or featured after the original Age of Apocalypse run do you wish had been part of the reimagined AOA framework? Oh, that is a great question. So, okay, characters who either didn't exist or were very minor before 1995. 
my brain first goes to the character Trinary from the recent X-Men Red. She is a technopath, but in a much grander way than any technopaths we've seen before. I would love to see her on the side of the mutant rebels, just getting all up in Apocalypse and the Horsemen's technology and just taking it over en masse, having there basically be a hacking war set in the Age of Apocalypse, which I think would fit 1995 pretty well. So, for cool powers and cool application of powers in this world and cool reaction to this world purposes, I'm going to go with another um, younger character introduced more recently. It's Nature Girl. Oh, yeah, because nature is almost entirely shredded in the Age of Apocalypse. That would be fascinating. Next, I would say Eyeboy. You know, the guy with eyes all over him. I think he would just be a really fascinating villain that only shows up a couple times, but just has a power that, when it goes evil, could be really creepy. Alright, I'm going to throw a wrench really hard into everything, and I'm going to say Cassandra Nova. Professor Xavier's evil womb twin in a world without Professor Xavier? Whoa. Mm-hmm. What Cassandra Nova do you get without Xavier as the contrast? Honestly, I think she could maybe be kind of a hero, and I think that would be fascinating. She would be a really interesting character. Speaking of interesting characters, Maggot. Maggot might finally get some freaking respect in the Age of Apocalypse, and maybe his powers wouldn't be considered gross because he's a mutant and mutants are awesome. Uh, actually, kind of Age of X-Man did that with a lot of characters, so, uh, you know, like that. But he'd have, like, cool face tattoos or something. Looking at characters with complex relationships to mutant identity that would probably have been changed by growing up in this world, Oya. Oh yeah, Edie. She would be great. Yeah. I want to see a lo-fi version of Mimi, or Meme, you know, the character whose name pronunciation is deliberately ambiguous, from Cy Spurrier's X-Force run. She's a character entirely built around the concepts of social media and information technology, and Age of Apocalypse is so lo-fi 90s tech, I'd love to see her equivalent in the Age of Apocalypse. So that made me think of someone who I think would be another... You know, I, I, you, you, you went for a lot of this character would have cool analogs. I went for this character would change everything and fundamentally break aspects of this universe. Hope Summers. Good freaking option. Although if you really want to break the universe, let's just throw the time-displaced teen original five X-Men from all-new X-Men from Bendis' run into the Age of Apocalypse just to utterly annihilate the concept of continuity. I, I feel like seeing his counterpart in this universe after dealing with all the 616 stuff might actually just straight up kill Teen Cyclops. <laughs> probably. Pat Dooley asks on Twitter, My regular D&D game is probably going to reach its final objective later this year, and there's been discussion about me possibly taking the reins on an X-based game when we're done. I kind of want to build my own game using D&D as a base, but where do I start? So, sometimes we get questions that are slightly outside of our expertise. Fortunately, in this case, we have an awesome source, and that is Logan Bonner. He's Pathfinder's lead designer. He's also DM'd our summer special role-playing sessions, um, making him, I think, one of the leading experts on adapting gaming systems to the X-Men. Here's what Logan has to say. Hi, listener. Anytime you're using a system to do something it wasn't really meant to do, you'll have to think outside the box on how to set up your game. The first issue you're likely to run into is that the class structure won't really fit the wild world of mutant powers in most cases. 
I recommend starting from the characters first and giving them spells, class abilities, and so on that fit their powers rather than having players build their characters conventionally. Start at a higher level so you have more power to work with and prep the characters ahead of time. If you're using existing X-Folk, you can get a jump on this. If they're making their own mutants, do some back and forth over email or chat to iron out the details. For enemies, it helps to reskin the enemies. Rather than building them from scratch, take existing monsters and make a few thematic tweaks to get them to fit right. However, at the point where you're doing enough work to shift D&D to work for a superhero game, you might be better served by playing a game built for superheroes in particular. If you want to use as much of your D&D knowledge as possible, Mutants and Masterminds uses much of the same terminology and has a ton of supplemental books to help out. Icons is a system that's nice and simple and especially good for a short-term game since you can get up and running quickly. And if I can promote a game I worked on for a second, Spectaculars is a new RPG in a box that has pre-written adventures and a ton of props and archetypes to customize characters. It doesn't have a mutant-specific scenario, though. There are also quite a few licensed Marvel RPGs out there, but they're all out of print and tough to come by. Marvel Heroic Roleplaying is your best bet among those. Good luck with your game. Even in Earth 295, we are a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement across the multiverse from a variety of fictional characters and concepts. And even in Earth 295, there still walks the angry Claremontian narrator. Since your arrival at this place, in this time, Wednesday, you've been witness to miracles and horrors, the likes of which have widened even your jaded eyes, and left you wondering what more could possibly be left to discover. Unfortunately, Wednesday, thanks to an abysmal failure of imagination, you failed to anticipate what damage one concerned citizen with terrible timing could wreak. But no thanks to Dante Moreno, you're about to find out. And the mic, of course, goes to none other but the emperor of our current universe, Apocalypse. The ascension of Apocalypse was inevitable. For who could oppose the robotic fish-lipped face of evolution itself? Just as certain as my rule, is the rise of the meager opposition that bites at my heels as ill-trained dogs will nip at their masters. Why should the near-forgotten Magnus oppose the dominance of his own species? Such concerns are beneath Apocalypse, and yet... The would-be master of magnetism has sent Emmett Okuna deep into the hollow earth to... Ally with the evolutionarily inert moloids. I see no purpose to this endeavor, but conflict breeds progress. Prelate Summers, take a squadron of infinites and slay this Okuna and slay some moloids while you are at it. They have a dumb name! And Magneto has sent another agent on a mission. John Hodson has... been shrunken to atomic size and travels to the microverse to recruit a rocket-powered centaur to Magnus's futile cause. Dark Beast, invent a means of accessing this 
Microverse and retrieve this tiny man. No matter its size, all realms belong to Apocalypse! And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the Age of Apocalypse is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, or possibly his Earth-295 counterpart. New episodes of Jay and Miles Explain the Age of Apocalypse come out most Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions for every episode, and the knowledge that, despite our pretenses here, the show does in fact still have the same title. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air, ad-free, and with fabulous facial tattoos and hair, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, it's time for some very sinister archaeology. As we dig into the backstory of the Age of Apocalypse. Apocalypse.